2002 Supervision presents Digital Nitrate, a Halloween podcast. Ooh. Chandler, look out. There's a huge puppet behind you. Where? Uh, you're, you're messing with me. That's just uh, <laughs> a cutout of Shaquille O'Neal. What's that what? doing there? Wait, that's not there? No. <gasps> superhero with the biggest pair of all. Elvira, the mistress of the dark, finds herself in the scariest situation yet, moving to Massachusetts. After falling out at her local TV studio, Elvira must find a way to muster up the funds to put on a show in Las Vegas. Thankfully, her great aunt has just died and put the witchy woman on her will. However, it's never easy dealing with family when it comes to the deceased. Can Elvira successfully navigate a villainous uncle, perverted real estate agents, and Puritan townsfolk? Of course, yeah. So, Joel, what did you think of Elvira, Mistress of the Dark? Uh, I've seen this film a lot of times at this point. I watch it pretty much every year during Halloween, which is why I thought it was a film set during Halloween, but it, it isn't. I'm sorry. We have already failed our stated goal of talking about films that take place on Halloween. We, so We had a huge list. We had, like, The Guest was on there, WNUF Halloween Special was on there. Yeah. Out of all of them, this huge list of films set on Halloween, me typing out Alvira, Mistress of the Dark, <laughs> I was mistaken. But it's got the Halloween spirit in it, and I think that's what matters the most. I see no reason why you couldn't call this a Halloween movie. If anything, in spirit it is. It's, It's got more Halloween spirit than the other two films. Maybe right. not trick or treat, it's a debate. But I think out of the three of these, if I'm picking one to watch on Halloween night, I would pick Elvira because it is a fun time. Totally. This film is a great film to put on if you don't want to, you know, invest in a movie. You don't really want to use your brain too much. But that's not to say that this isn't funny. It's a lot of great quips, a lot of great one-liners, and a lot of quirky characters, that's for sure. Definitely helps having a great writing cast behind this. The comedy troupe that Alvira was a part of. I don't remember their names, but I know uh, John Paragon was in it, and he mm -hmm. co-wrote this. Mm -hmm. I know Edie McClurg was in it, and she is uh, the chastity pariah. Chastity the, pariah. The, <laughs> the, a bit of a priss, which is a great character to put up against Alvira. And, of course, this is also co-written by Cassandra P Peterson uh, herself. Alvira herself. Yeah. I definitely, I imagine a lot of Elvira content is co-written by Cassandra Peterson. Writing for this and acting for this is a lot different than their uh, TV uh, series. Yeah. You obviously get a lot more freedom, a little bit more range with movies. You can get a little racier, a little... You're describing the same reason Jackass went to cinema. Oh, totally, yeah. I mean... The difference between Jackass TV and Jackass movie is like, you know, it's like Jackass for kids on TV. <laughs> well, terrific. You can try your act out on me. It's milking time. All right, so as a horror host, Alvira is known for showing these cheesy 50s B-horror movies. 
and we get one right at the beginning of the film. We get uh, it conquered the world. So we get our uh, our little Dick Miller cameo. Rest in peace, Dick Miller. It's great seeing him so much, even though he's technically not in this film because it's archive footage. But I was watching Gremlins recently, so I've been spending a lot of time with Dick Miller recently. Having some quality time. We should have been talking about Gremlins. It's not set on Halloween. It's set on Christmas <laughs> Eve, but... Yeah, so Elvira's got her little show going, and she is accosted by the TV station owner. The Harvey Weinstein type. Yeah, looking for a little date with Elvira, and Elvira being the feisty woman that she is, she uh, uh, she says no and puts an exclamation mark on it by uh, stepping on his toes. To my toes. With her very pointy heels, and uh, believe it or not that uh loses her her job yeah it's the start of alvira's uh i i hate using the word girl boss but <laughs> she's kind of got that vibe she's girl boss in a cool way for sure she's got all of her unpaid parking tickets hell yeah you know she's dropping like entire hot dogs on her boobs that i, I don't know if that's girl boss or just terribly clumsy i don't know how you drop an entire dog on your boobs <laughs> But, I mean, hey, she blows up a gas station. That's pretty girl boss. That That is really girl boss. Uh, it says self-service. Why the fuck was he sitting out there then? It's a warm day. Why not spend the time outside? I think that he deserved to get blown up, that gas station <laughs> attendant. I wonder if he actually died. I wonder if this film has a big kill count. <laughs> Bigger than, uh... Halloween. I thought you were going to say bigger than Elvira's breasts. And the gas station is uh, playing that ludicrously catchy chicken fried steak song. Hey, I got some gas. That's stuck in my head to this day. I'm trying not to think about it. <laughs> I want to know the context behind that. I want to know why that's the song playing at the gas station. <laughs> I think it's just to show how much of a redneck, you know, outpost it is. <laughs> it reminds me of like Critters, where they have the uh, the hungry heifer, that theme song. You don't know, you haven't seen Critters, which um, yeah, it's debatable whether you need to, but. There's sort of like multiple villains throughout the film. Well, the whole town is kind of a villain. Mm. You got Chastity Pariah, the Pris, yep. uh, the motel owner, kind of, turns up a couple of times. Yep. Who's supposed to be the villain is uh, her uncle Vinny, Vincent Talbot. Mm. Which is, is, it's got to be a Vincent Price reference and a, a Lyle Talbot reference as well, I guess. <laughs> Smash that together. Referencing everyone in those 50s B-horrors. It's a good job you've got me to tour guide you through this. <laughs> yeah, I feel like uh, I'm just sitting here and, and Joel is at the front of the bus explaining all of these silly little horror things to me. <laughs> On the brink of of this grand adventure that I'm coming back from and I'm saying you know what it might not be worth it stick to 80s horror 50s horror is fun if you're uh if you're old I guess <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I, uh, it's not for everybody, that's for sure. 50s horror is fun for uh, watching with your sweetheart in the drive-in. Right, you're sitting in the drive-in or like the back of the theater. You got your arm around your girl. You know how it is. That was a fun little monster jump scare. Now there are seven talking scenes in a row, so let's just make out. Yeah, that's definitely, that's it has to be why there's been, there's so much making out associated with those old films because they just talk and there's nothing going on. So they're like, you better find something better to do and you might as well smash faces in the meantime. It's either you're making out with your sweetheart or you're jerking off on your own and one of them is a criminal offense so yeah it's not good to kiss people in public you go to jail for that we'd make out at the drive-in right i mean on the first date oh i have standards joel no you don't yeah that's true <laughs> you know who does have standards though it's our guy daniel green plays Bob Redding, the movie theater owner. He's also an American rickshaw. Also an American rickshaw. I know you like that film. Someone out there knows. Someone out there. They're out there for you. <laughs> Get in touch. Um, but I'd like to thank this film for uh, depicting us movie theater operators as a uh, very handsome, attractive young men who uh, attract very beautiful, big-breasted women. It's very true. Happens to me all the time. Uh, as the as the manager of a, a local small picture house and we are also equally as economically unviable uh as this film <laughs> you also go for, out for drinks at the bowling alley ah uh, that's oh dude we i i wish we had a local bowling alley like that like there's no hangout spot like that but every time i like see these old like 70s 80s movies or sp specifically greece too <laughs> I mean, the greatest bowling film ever made. The greatest film about hanging out at a at a bowling theater, a bowling theater, a bowling alley. <laughs> I'm leaving theater. That's fine. And my entire body is covered in gold glitter. Could you die? Oh, all right. I'm telling you, that's a guaranteed standing ovulation. I like the format that uh, Elvira chooses for the midnight screening she has at the picture house like she's just she's just lounging by the side of the screen on the couch and just bullshitting she's just like what's up with that just guy with a microphone just say yeah. it's like how we watch films honestly that's exactly what it is it's it's how everybody watches horror films with their friends it's gotta be awkward <laughs> if one of those jokes doesn't land though the audience is just dead silent, but instead of it being two guys, you know, it's a fucking crowd of teenagers all staring at you. But you know Elvira's jokes never, never fall. I don't know. <laughs> Siskel and Ebert think so. Uh, I mean, what do they know? Ebert sees a woman having fun and he just instantly thumbs it down. He says, fuck that. <laughs> he says the plot isn't fun. What? And you know what? He's wrong. It's fun. It doesn't exist, but it's fun nonetheless. Yeah. I mean, how can you say a plot where a bunch of, you know, middle-aged and elderly people start grinding on each other and sitting on each other's faces? Tell me, how, how can you tell me that's not fun? They're sucking mustard off each other's ears. Come on. It's a very mustard-heavy film, actually. Yeah, on the hot she dog. she drops the hot dog on, on hot her dog. boobs. Mustard, interesting. What, what are you trying to say, Elvira? I think that that's just one of the producer's fetishes. 
does the mustard represent in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark? Thankfully, there is a YouTube video out there explaining that to us in gruesome detail. <laughs> Thank God. The secret meaning behind the mustard in Elvira. Alright, Joel, well, it's time to cut the mustard, so to speak. Tell me, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, is it a fangs up or a fangs down? I like that. That's spooky, like Halloween. Uh, it's a, it's a fangs up. I don't think everyone will like it. I think I've said that about every film we've talked about, though. <laughs> I mean, that's just how film works, truthfully. I don't think everyone will like it, you know? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> Some people... <laughs> Might be boring assholes, Very and they true. won't like this film. Yes, if you're a boring asshole, you will not like this. It's fun. It's uh, charming. It's got plenty of those references to 50s B-horror, so maybe watch some of those first. Maybe watch a little bit of uh, Movie Macabre first, and then check it out, preferably on a October night, preferably with a handful of close friends. Yeah, I have to agree. This is a, a fangs up for me as well. It the is... A horror comedy fangs up from Chandler. You got it, guys. We did it, finally. It only took three episodes. Um, the so-called miserable bastard <laughs> Chandler. There, there is a little soul in me there somewhere. 80s comedy that's good is, is, is rare. Very far and few between, so... Uh, when you can get it, a, you should what take a, it. What, a, what an inflammatory comment. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let it go. I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna let it be known. Uh, definitely give Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, a shot. It's, it's fantastic, honestly. This is the one night. Don't forget your costume. From director Michael Dougherty comes Trick or Treat. The anthology movie that's so drenched in Halloween iconography, you'll be vomiting up blood. If you love the disconnected monotony of life, you're bound to enjoy this modern take on classic horror stories such as Marilyn Manson werewolves, Todd Salon's happiness, and two stories that meet the bare minimum plot requirements. Produced by real-life Brian Singer, Trick or Treat tries its best to keep the holiday fun and light-hearted, Except for the extended sequence of murdering autistic children for some reason. So Chandler, we watched Trick or Treat. Sure did. Which is a film that I seem to watch every Halloween, despite my best efforts to not watch it again. I try my best to keep you from doing it. I've tried everything. I've tried locking you down. I've tried threatening you with violence. It's just, you can't get away from this film i mean it's difficult to get away from it because it is very it very much embodies the halloween spirit it's a very halloweeny movie it's light-hearted i believe you said that it's kind of airy quick and kind of knows that it's kind of like you have the knowledge that halloween is only one night so you gotta make the most of it. So you gotta cram four stories into one single night. Yeah. Gotta time travel a little bit right at the end. Yeah, it's uh... It's got like everything you want. It's got like autumnal leaves everywhere. Pumpkins, definitely. Everyone's wearing costumes. There's a big Halloween parade for some reason. And scariest of all, it's Ohio. 
<laughs> it should have been Salem. This is another one where it should have been Salem. Every Halloween film should be set in Salem. At this point, though, you're really suggesting that all of these films be made in Salem or set in Salem. That's a lot of films now. Yeah. Bring the film institutes to Salem so that they can get a lot of money and become even more Halloween-y. This film is technically an anthology. It has its four or five distinct uh, stories, but they're very, like, clumsily mashed together. Clumsily, but I would say very interestingly. You know, most anthologies, I think obviously the big uh, touchstone here for this film is Creepshow. You know, most of those anthologies are sequential. You know, this story, that story ends. This story, that story ends. Very, like solidly divided by the comic book uh, overarching storyline. Right, but this one not necessarily turns it on its head, but does, you know, mix it all together. It's semi-sequential, but then you'll also go back and you'll see, you know, different stories happening in the background of the current story, stuff like that. I, I think that's fun. Kind of the way I see it, the first half of it has that sort of mixture of every story. Every story is being set up at once. But then once the, um, the the bus accident story starts, the, the cursed bus accident, <laughs> then it that one just kind of goes on for a while, and then it will just cut back to the werewolf story, and then it will completely go back in time for the last story. <laughs> yeah, that, that's very true. A rock quarry. Nice way to celebrate Halloween, Macy. Why are we here? To pay our respects to the dead. So, since it's an anthology, why not talk about them as if uh, they're all individual stories? And why not make it fun? Why not uh, talk about them worst to best? Sure. Yeah, a little, a little competition, a little ranking. Um, so just to be clear, we got the four stories. That's uh, the werewolves, mm -hmm. the principal. You can remember all of them. I believe in you. I got this. It is the little shits going mm -hmm. down to the quarry and the old man who mm -hmm. is terrible. And there is also an opening stinger. I don't know whether you'd count it as a story, but... Right. Yeah, it's like half a story that kind of like uh bookends it's a it's a kill really it's that's all it has to offer it's a pretty decent opening it's fun even though she does kind of look like a wallace and gromit character when she dies but <laughs> again it's a it's a fun film so these kind of like goofier kills don't actually like take you out of the film at all so let's leave the let's leave the opening uh what would you say is the worst of the four stories the worst of the four stories for me is probably gonna be the quarry yeah i would i would agree with that one actually i think it uh is too long and also mm -hmm. very questionable for the tone of the film yeah it's it's over long it's uh, slow compared to everything else and the payoff you know takes a while to come around and the whole thing about the bus and all of that it, it seemed a, a little uh, unnecessarily cruel it's a it's a weirdly sharp turn to go from what's the story before it's like the principal which is kind of a dark story but it's sort of light-hearted because it's Dylan Baker as well 
they just kind of threw him in <laughs> but um the the bus story itself is this sharp turn into like a really dark subject and it's like is this really is this really appropriate it is a little too edgy and definitely feels a little out of place um i I think that they could have done it better like i'm not saying it can't be a bad sequence it's just you know the certain plot points the certain way they go about it well it's sort of the lingering question is is it intended to be an edgy thing or did the writers genuinely think they were making a good statement when they added this section i from what i can tell from watching it 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 doesn't really fill me with any sense of them having something to say yeah you know they were they just wanted to be mean guys they're they're all meanies those guys over there what was this i want to say like 2006 that was sort of a hot spot for ableism still lingering it's it's last little dregs of uh survival in the film industry definitely very mainstream you know casual jokes about uh neurodivergent people and and things like that and so i i think that too given the time frame you know it's basically aping the same as like south park or or any other sort of thing at that time you know they weren't doing it to be uh socially conscious <laughs> for a story that involves five children they got a good selection of actors actually it was fun yeah you kind of ran the whole gamut the bossy lead girl the uh little kid who's stupid i don't think he's stupid he's just uh he's just a little he's just a dumb little <laughs> shit it's okay <laughs> And he wears kielbasa around his neck for some reason. Just for a little bit. Just in case he gets hungry. It's part of the theme of, like, fat kids that eat too much that's also throughout this whole film. But the, um... I... (laughs) Sorry. Let's wrap it. I can can do a bit more. I just need to stop stuttering. Not now, Andrew. Josh. So, seems as you're leading this ranking, why don't you go for your uh, third best pick? Okay. My third best pick is gonna be the werewolves. Oh. I think I would have gone for the Mr. Krieg story, but we'll talk about the werewolves. Yeah. It is, interestingly, actually probably longer than the quarry. It's just split out amongst the film yeah. uh, quite a bit and it takes sort of until past the halfway point to finish. It's one of the earliest ones that they set up and, and it definitely ends a lot later. It's just split up a lot by the rest of the film and it's fun. It's not, you know, I would say that really only the quarry one is bad and the rest of these are really only kind of me yeah. in, in the slightest way, maybe more personally how I like them. Um, yeah, the werewolves... You know, it, it definitely hides its hand pretty well. It really wasn't until the last, you know, scene of it where where I uh, kind of realized put two yeah. and two together where it was going. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is which is cool. It spends like the whole thing with very suggestively neutral language. They'll mm-hmm. say things like, "Oh, this is gonna be your first or um. Yeah, no, I th- I think it's how they set it up as being sort of like the sex comedy part. I guess as a horror viewer going into that, that's sort of what you're expecting, anyways, and that's what you feel like you're gonna get. 
And the, uh, the, the misdirect that they introduce is the vampire character. Mm-hmm. You see him, you're like, oh, she's gonna find this guy and take him back to the party. And he's gonna kill people. It's gonna be like a little bit of maybe a vampire or maybe a, even a bit of a slasher segment. But then, uh, it's not. It's not at all. It isn't at all. Although... It is, uh, the big scary reveal is in fact that that vampire, quote-unquote, who isn't actually a vampire, is even worse. It's Dylan Baker. <laughs> it's Dylan Baker again. Stephen. Stephen. Stephen Wilkins. Yeah, that was also a fun little uh, mis- misdirect as well, making us think that the vampire is somebody else, but then that little reveal there. Very cheeky, very fun. And he's, he <laughs> says, like, I've got a date at the parade later. And I guess his date right, was right. Uh, harassing women and biting them. I mean, 2007, that is what most men <laughs> were considering dates at the time. It's a pretty good um, werewolf transformation, actually. In the hierarchy of them, you've got, like, at the top. I don't want to just say American werewolf in London, because everyone says that. But it's a it's a very good transformation. This is sort of like a couple of notches under it where I can tell exactly how it's all done, but it still looks great. Sort of like the fur under the flesh, it's a very like the company of wolves. I think that film also has fur under flesh. And it also has Angela Lansbury, rest in peace. But uh that's sort of the big ending is not only the reveal but maybe the biggest effect in the film i can't think of any others that are bigger yeah definitely where they they put the effects budget for sure and you've got like just some stabbing some uh some some halloween masks nothing too like big it's it genuinely might just be all saved for this one werewolf segment which is a smart thing to do actually Totally. Yeah, mostly just uh, blood bags, squirting, and everything else. Hiding bodies? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Nothing. So, number two is... Number two. This is where it's going to get interesting. Oh. Ooh, what's he going to say? Uh, I-, I think it's the-, the principal scene. I think it's the principal scene. <laughs> Um, yeah, you really start off with a big sense of unease and dread because, uh, fucking Dylan Baker. (laughs) He's very good at being creepy, especially after seeing Happiness. That's sort of his, um, I don't want to say his magnum opus, that might be rude, but (laughs) he comes across as a creepy person now, and I hope he enjoys that. I hope he's having a great time. Oh, you could tell he was having so much fun with this role. (laughs) He's pulling the the same face for the whole thing. This, like, he's, like, disgusted by children. He's so, like... Yeah, so you start off with him, like, being creepy, but you're never really sure right off the bat is, like, is he just a creepy weirdo or is he murderous? And then it answers that question uh, fairly quickly. (laughs) With a great, uh, great puking effect. We don't get much puke in, uh, fun horror films. No. All I can think of was uh, in the Halloween 2018, or was that Kills? I think in Kills, was it they had that fake out uh, vomit thing? I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm just going to put a clip of Evil Dies Tonight here. Evil Dies Tonight! He kills a kid, you know, it happens. And then it's sort of this funny, like, 
screwball uh, skit of him trying to bury the body in his backyard and either his kid is interrupting him, his neighbor is interrupting him. Uh, <laughs> He's trying to bury him in like a pit of like three or four bodies. And I'm wondering, does he do this regularly or does he just do this every Halloween? Does he does he have one per Halloween? Yeah, it seems like a Halloween tradition. It's pretty funny that he buries them all in exactly the same spot. But also he planted like a sapling on top of it yeah. too. So like, does he tear down the tree each Halloween? I don't know. These are the questions that make us, you know, be frightful of the night. What else is he hiding in that garden? That could just be the newest hole of several. And then finally the, the big payoff, you think that he is going to kill his own kid. Because, you know, he's fed up with him. He's always interrupting him. He's always screaming out the window. Yeah, so they go down to the basement to make the jack-o'-lantern. And it looks as if uh, Dylan Baker is about to stab his own son in the head. And then, psych, they're they're both massively fucked up. <laughs> they're terrible. Th- th- that kid's going to be so messed up. And that's sort of the, like, the, the big-ish payoff is that you don't expect to see a decapitated child head being butchered by a different child. It's kind of like... Mm. I want to compliment it by saying it's juggling a goofy tone with a very grim dark tone. It's not juggling it well. But for a minute (laughs) there it was. For a minute there I was like, well, this is really grim and I'm having a great time. (laughs) So number one... Yes, number one, very easily the old man and the little uh, poster child, literally. Uh, so it's like a little scarecrow guy, I guess. Uh, this, the sack on the head's kind of scarecrow-ish. He turns into like the son of pumpkin head at the end, but oh, it's kind right. of surprising how like iconic he called Sam, how iconic he became considering how modern this is. Because he's, I've seen him used quite a lot as this, like, Halloween mascot, so. Hmm. Yeah, so we, we start off with Brian Cox being a, a real asshole. Hates Halloween, hates everybody, he's really. literally stealing candy from, not babies, but children. <laughs> and, um, yeah, he thinks that he's he's ready to, to tuck in. What the fuck was that? My can, just keep going. <laughs> You know, he, th- he thinks that he's ready to tuck into a, a nice night of watching infomercials on Halloween night, but uh, Sam has something to say about that, uh, specifically that he's going to kill his dog, <laughs> which he does. Does he kill the dog? I don't remember. I watched this like a few days ago. Does he actually like kill the dog? That's a, yeah. I don't. I don't know if you'd see it's dead, but it like does like disappear. So he, I feel like it's kind of implied. It's a Halloween tradition killing a dog (laughs) yeah so then we get this kind of interesting battle between brian cox and sam the little scarecrow pumpkin kid the big reveal of course being that brian cox was the bus driver who drove the uh kids off the cliff it would have been a fun reveal if that sequence was great but instead, I'm just kind of like, yeah. oh, he was the bus driver, okay. Oh, this asshole. <laughs> this asshole. <laughs> so we even get a little sequence where uh, some trick-or-treaters comes up, and he's handing out candy, and it's like, oh, great, he's learned the the meaning of Halloween. Got his candy in his sling, which uh, <laughs> apparently he had handy lying around. Oh, right, and the, the head wrap. <laughs> um, they should have put him in, like, a huge neck brace. <laughs> yeah. But then we get another ring on the bell, and who should be there but the 
the uh, the seven children uh, reanimated coming back to kill him. Ending the film with a title drop. They say yep. trick or treat. Trick or treat. The story itself has like I guess ghostly uh, vibes to it. The uh, the Sam his name. I'll use his name. I won't just call him something dumb. Sam uses. Uh, I don't want to say common ghost techniques, like I'm Zach Baggins, but, you know, like, writing appears on the wall, and he's, like, making poltergeist noises. Every story does have its own, like, horror villain theme, but for some reason, they use ghost twice, you know? Because <laughs> they use ghost in the, uh, the bus accident story. Right. It could be zombie, though, actually. I think they're more... Like, uh, like, drowned zombies. Kind of. And I just get, like, ghost vibes from them. Maybe it's the, uh, the rest of that setup. But we get, uh, we get our werewolves, our ghosts, our zombies, and our weird serial killers. <laughs> yeah, it really runs the whole gamut of Halloween tropes and, uh, and characters. Best of all, unlike the previous film we talked about, it actually takes place on Halloween. It does. We did it. We found a Halloween film. We 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 properly or we we actually did the assignment. <laughs> and at least this one does feel more like a Halloween film than uh Alvira did. Because it's Definitely. so like drenched in iconography, it's insane. So Chandler, trick or treat, is it a nice handful of sling candy or is it a poisoned chocolate bar from Dylan Baker? <laughs> It is a lovely handful of Werther's original candies coming out of Brian Cox's arm sling, which that, that makes it sound kind of gross in a weird sexual way. But anyways, this is a, a very competent, albeit messy and at times questionable horror film with quirky elements competent in the sense that uh, most of the time these kinds of movies are done way worse so for something with uh this level of detail this good of acting and these many uh interesting ideas i i gotta you know give it more of a positive spin than otherwise it's definitely a uh i don't want to say it's like a a good candy from brian cox's sling <laughs> Maybe it's like a, just like a boring boiled sweet. Maybe it's like a piece of licorice. It's, it's a fun watch with people. Uh, like maybe during a Halloween party, it will really set the tone. It'll really be a fun background piece of media. Watching it on your own, it can get a little bit tedious. And it, again, it is quite messy, but I as I said, I end up watching this every Halloween somehow, so clearly something works about it. And I'll see you on the next bus accident. <laughs> Good evening. My name is Chandler Crumblebottom, reporting for BBC One. Tonight... We take you to a small hamlet outside London, where we are covering a story the likes you hear about only in old ghost tales. I'm losing the accent. Here we find the early residents. The family reports paranormal activities like unheard of in modern times. Strange noises, broken glasses, the terrifying chills. 
tonight, on Halloween night, we have our crew on the premises ready to find out if these claims are substantiated, uh, matey, or just a hoax. Army hearty. <laughs> Tell me, Swabby. What did you Shiver think of me, me movies? I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, Joel, we watched Ghost Watch. It's about time someone asked a British person what they think of Ghost Watch. <laughs> I'm fed up of all you fucking yanks telling me about Ghost Watch. <laughs> I'm here, I know. <laughs> and this needs some British context, so... I'm just gonna give some British context real quick. Can you explain to me really quick why the the space underneath your stairs are called glory holes? <laughs> They're not. They're not if you're from where I'm from. <laughs> They're called cubby holes where I'm from, but a glory hole? That's a different thing. Maybe it's because we're gay, but... Alright, so we have... Or we have had a show called Crime Watch, which what used to be every week and then slowly became every month, the Beeb would give a demonstration of every major crime that has been unsolvable, and they would appeal to the public for information on these crimes, if anyone knows anything. So it became a very like well-known part of the British culture crime watch this show where they will get in the big presenters and they'll very like matter of fact sit in the studio and explain the crimes and maybe send someone out to talk to the neighbors where the crime took place which leads into ghost watch you see the the watch i see the yep i'm putting two and two together here which is a parody of crime watch but it is done so realistically to the point where I think children and old age pensioners got PTSD from this film. Damn. It's sort of like the modern day equivalent of the uh, Orson Welles War of the Worlds incident. Yeah, this this program came on, I, I, I read something that said here that it was after the 9pm watershed, and by that, does that mean like, uh, is that like when they expect all the little kitties to be asleep? Yeah. Uh, watershed is 9pm, after that your programs can swear and be inappropriate, because right. I, I guess that's the national bedtime. Yeah, no child is ever awake past 9pm in England. And maybe that's why I became so fucked up, was that in my my, uh, early teens I was staying up past nine so you were you were exposed to the dangerous world of late night British television I saw all the scary shows such as the 10 o'clock news ah. <laughs> so everyone in this film is a British presenter that would usually present you know real factual shows like Michael Parkinson Craig Charles like, all of them I've seen on TV throughout, like, most of my life presenting real things, which is sort of the edge that Ghostwatch has, is that from an outside perspective, you can see these being actors, but from being in Britain, like, there's no way to see them as actors. Except Craig Charles, maybe. He was in Red Dwarf, which is... <laughs> I want to say good, but I haven't seen it in a while, and it's probably problematic, so... <laughs> Boo! 
I bet that's scared, isn't it? No, this is not a mask. This is Craig Charles live, you lucky people. Uh, yeah, I was I was kind of surprised while doing research, like looking into these quote unquote actors and seeing that none of them really have roles. And that's because, like he said, you know, these are your presenters. These are your newscasters, your documentary talkers, yeah. you know, things of that nature that that supposedly tell you the truth. Which is part of the... I, don't, I guess gag of the film is that it's as real as it possibly can be. Now, personally, and this is sort of where I have my negative things to say, you know, they they only go so far as actors. No offense to them, but... I w- I'm inclined to agree with you, but I will not have any Craig Charles slander. He does not miss a beat in this film. He was, he was a silly dude, yeah. <laughs> He's just like that in reality, but because he is also an actor, he can bring that to the screen without it feeling forced. He was definitely in it all the way, that's for sure. Everybody else, you know, I feel like we're we're almost playing it not necessarily too straight, but I feel like they they were uneasy doing it, uh, which makes sense because yeah, I mean it's an uneasy situation, yeah. So it, it, it and, and that's the toss up. Like you can't have a convincing film with actors or hold on what am i trying to say here you can't have a convincing film with actors (laughs) period (laughs) i'm not sure about that one i've seen plenty of convincing (laughs) films with actors i feel like i really respect this program and as a lover and maker of mockumentaries you know this has a high level of realism and production it just sort of lacks the conviction i think you get from people who come from you know the acting realm the movie realm it looked like i don't know whether this is just because i grew up watching british factual programming but it has the sort of exact look and feel of all that programming and (laughs) thanks that was the that was my scary door opening creaking open that was your glory hole (laughs) Oh, that's that's quite extraordinary. We set out to catch a ghost, and and sadly, very sadly, what we witnessed was a remarkable exposure of a hoax. That's not. I certainly feel like if I was there, you know, that fateful night in 1992, uh, it, it would be more scary. But I feel like I almost went in with too much context. Just <laughs> just the just the basic context of this film, knowing that it is a ghost film. Yeah, yeah. it really, I think would benefit the viewer from complete uh complete ignorance going into it well that's the thing is you can never go back to the airing date of it and you never can yeah because that day that it aired like it must have been scary if so many people got ptsd but uh watching it now in context you are given it knowing that it is a ghost parody of crime watch so you know what's coming I think it's funny to think of the kids who didn't go to sleep at nine and the kids who did go to sleep at nine. You know, one of them wakes up the next day totally unaware of what has happened, and the other one has woken up thinking that ghost and spirits of a, of a dead, uh, unfortunate soul has haunted the entire technological system of BBC broadcasting. They got the entire BBC. They got Michael. He's saying like they nursery got Michael. Rhymes. Not they Michael. Michael Michael Parkinson, the uh the uh the vanguard of, of Britain. 
even he is unsafe from the from the grasps of evil. My favorite uh, sequence actually is of when the uh, the ghost haunts the set and like everybody's running out. There's a gale, there's a wind, like lights are exploding, and he's just kind of like. Oh, would you look at that? Like he's just he's like, like, oh, what the fuck's going on in here? He's a uh, he's sort of the he is he is the uh, the highest caliber of of BBC presenter because <laughs> you know no matter what's going on, no matter what bullets are flying over his head or stay on camera, <laughs> you do not move. Keep presenting like he doesn't even know if the cameras are on, but like you remember, like it, it was totally black. He's like, oh, I don't even know if anybody can hear me, but, you know, this is going on, this, this is going on. <laughs> and that's just, that's just professionalism. <laughs> he's, he's been paid to do a job, he's gonna do it well. He's, <laughs> it's funny how he spends the whole film, like, it's a very BBC thing to be completely on the fence and to not take either side. Oh, so the right, whole right. time when um, the ghost professional next to him is like, well, this is clearly a sign of uh, a poltergeist, and he's like, well, it could be something else, but, uh, and it's like he never, never takes a side. Even right. when they see the picture of, uh, the ghost in front of the curtains, it's the most obvious, like, ghost shape ever, and Michael's like, ah, I can't see anything. Nah, I mean, it really could be, you know, like when you put your dressing gown on the back of your door. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, it's clearly a ghost right there. And he's like... Uh, could be anything. That's that. That's that classic uh, British cynicism for you. It could have made a great satire about how the BBC, are, like, completely <laughs> deadlocked center politically. Right. Like, like the ghost grabs the camera and is like staring directly into it. Is like, I'm here to kill all of you. And he's like, oh, well, well, uh, just could just be a prankster. You know, the other side has said this. So. <laughs> Let's see what let's see what our man in New York has to say about that. Ghosts are real. I've never seen a ghost. Fuck you, I'm an atheist. I've seen all your footage and I think it's bullshit. Why does he sound like David Lynch in my head? <laughs> you think you've seen a real ghost haunting on your fucking telephone? Get real. Bullshit. So, on a scale of 1 to 10 cat growls, uh where where do you stand with Ghost Watch? The scale gives me so much uh, option. Yeah, really open it up for you. It's maybe like seven cats and a leopard. <laughs> that leopard is strong, but I'm not sure it belongs here. Yeah, it's a little out of place. And the leopard is Craig Charles. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a very fun watch. Um, again, I'll keep you up to date on whether it's fun on rewatch, because I'm probably going to watch it again at some point. I don't think you will, no. but I'll tell you whether it's just as fun. I will give this like a, I'd say anywhere from like three to four. That sounds harsh. Are they but at least not... like good cat noises? They're good. We'll call them meows, like really, really cute meows, right? We'll say that. That can be the pull quote for the Blu-ray cover. <laughs> four cute cat meows, Chandler from Supervision. <laughs> Yeah, they um they aren't they aren't uh, overly harsh, but also not not that great either. I I personally just didn't enjoy this in the active watching of it. I think what I found more enjoyment is is sort of the context and the background of it. It's just 
you know, I had trouble, you know, getting into it with some of the acting and some of it was a little too, you know, stagey, too, too, uh, too stiff for what they were trying to do. And, uh, I feel like without the British context, it didn't quite have as much punch. Uh, but again, that's, that's sort of my fault for, for being an American, of course. And you're from Massachusetts. It's basically just like Britain, too. Well, it is New England, I suppose. We have we have our own scary stuff to worry about here. <laughs> <laughs> Boston. Ah. So, Chandler, when is Johnny getting back? Because we've been down here for a couple of weeks yeah, now. Yeah, about that. So... Uh, some good news, some bad news sort of wrapped all together here. Johnny's plane kind of crashed oh. in the middle of the Pacific. But it's like, it's good news because he's, he's alive. Everybody's, you know, everybody survived the crash. They're all in like a really nice uh, secluded, isolated island. They're all like drinking coconut water and stuff. It, it's hmm. pretty good. But uh, thankfully, uh, the rescue party won't be there for another few days. And then they got to get them back here. So we uh, we can hang out at Johnny's in Johnny's basement more now. Oh, we could we could hang out in the rest of his house. I think that's safe too. Yeah, I feel like I'm I'm feeling a bit more confident. You know, it's getting um, stuffy down here. It's starting to smell because we've been pissing in the corner. Yeah, there's mold growing on my shirt, which is not there's mold ideal. growing on my foreskin. Oh God, you gotta get that checked out. Um, but yeah, let's let's go upstairs. Maybe let's we could yeah. like hang out on his, his his couch. Yeah. Maybe watch some movies. Oh shit! I just got a phone notification. Uh, the the FedEx plane that was delivering my replacement Activia just crashed. Uh oh. Bullshit. <laughs> 